Thanks, Travis. Hey, good morning. I don't know if that was weak on my part or weak on your part. Hey, good morning. <laughs> good to be here this morning. Glad everybody's wide awake. If you're joining us online, glad you're here with us as well, or there with us as well. But we're all together, right? Yeah. A guy by the name of Robert Thornton was a professor at economics at Lehigh University. And he got to where he was frustrated with always being asked to write letters of recommendation for people that he didn't really think were qualified for the job that they were applying for. So he came up with what he called a list, he called it a lexicon of inconspicuously ambiguous recommendations, <laughs> or liar for short. <laughs> Let me share with you a couple things that were on his list. To describe a person who is extremely lazy, in my opinion, you'll be very fortunate to get this person to work for you. <laughs> to describe a person who is totally inept, I most enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> to describe an ex-employee who has problems getting along with his co-workers, I am pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. <laughs> to describe a candidate who is so unproductive that the job would be let, better left unfulfilled, I can assure you that no person would be better for this job. And then finally, to describe an applicant who is not worth further consideration, I would urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment. So you hear those uh, letters of uh, those recommendations, and it kind of sounds like that professor is saying one thing, but in the context, we know he really means something else, right? I mean, he is being very inconspicuously ambiguous. This morning we are in our fearless sermon series. We're taking some time and we're looking at this amazing life of Joshua. And this morning we and Joshua are going to be introduced to a man who is inconspicuously ambiguous. It's a fascinating interaction that I think has some applications for us. The Israelites have just entered the promised land they are getting ready to face the enemy for the very first time. Uh, the battle of Jericho is imminent. But before that battle takes place, Joshua has an encounter. He has a conversation with a very strange guy, very mysterious guy. And this interaction, this, this conversation, I think is going to change Joshua's life for the rest of his life. It's in Joshua chapter 5, towards the end of that chapter, verse 13. Now when Joshua, was, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua is about to lead the Israelites into the biggest battle in history. Joshua is a man of action, and he has apparently met another man of action. There's a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Now, we don't know if Joshua was alone when he encountered this man. I, I get the impression that he was, but I don't know. I don't know if Joshua drew his sword when he saw this man. I, I kind of feel like he probably did, but that's just me. Uh, I get the impression it was sort of like in The Princess Bride when, when Wesley met the six-fingered man and said, we are both men of action. Lies do not become us. 
So here are two men of action. I don't know what Joshua was thinking at that time. I do know he didn't waste any time getting right down to what he wanted to know, though. He looks at this mystery man and he says, I've only got one question for you. It's a very important question. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Because that's all that really matters right here. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? I don't think Joshua expected the answer that he received from this guy. He's told, neither. Wait a minute. There's only two sides to this thing. There's this side and there's that side. There's you know, my side and their side. There's, there is our side and there's the enemy's side. Now, whose side are you on? This guy says, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Which immediately gets Joshua's attention. This was not an ordinary man who's standing in front of him with a drawn sword. This apparently is the commander of the army of the Lord. And again, we're not exactly sure who that man was or represented. Some people say it was God himself. Some people say it was the son of man. Some people say it was Michael the archangel. Uh, The truth is, Scripture is not real clear on that. What is clear is that Joshua understood that he was standing in the presence of the Lord. And he knew it full well. So, So what does this... Man of action, Joshua, do. You know, how does he respond, this leader of the Israelites, this protege of Moses? Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Joshua understood that he was in the presence of a celestial being. Now, before we continue with this pretty interesting interaction... Why did the commander say, neither? Whose side are you on? Ours or our enemies? Why did he say, neither? Why didn't he say, I'm for you because you're for God? Why didn't he say, I'm for you because you're leading God's people? Why didn't he say, I'm for you because Moses chose you, God chose you to to be the next in line? Because God told you several times, be strong and courageous. Why didn't the, shouldn't the commander of the Lord's army align himself with Joshua? Instead, he makes it really clear. There's not two sides to this thing. There's not your side and their side. There's not good versus evil here. There's, there's just one side. It's God's side. Joshua, you're not the commander of the Lord's army. God is the commander of this army. You need to be sure that you're on God's side, not trying to make sure that God is on your side. Have you ever had times in your life when when things weren't going that well? Just just things weren't going very well. And you kind of stop and wonder, is God even on my side anymore? You You know, where's God? I feel like maybe he's not even on my side anymore. Well, that's the wrong question to ask, right? The question to ask is, am I still on God's side? a lot of things that we can learn about this encounter, but but I don't want to bury the lead, okay? I'm going to share with you just a couple things out of this uh, this, uh, conversation, but but I don't want to miss the main point. I don't want to minimize the main point because it's really important. God is in charge. He always will be in charge. I'm not in charge. 
And by the way, I think this realization actually takes a great deal of pressure off of Joshua. It's not my army. It's God's army. I'm not in charge. The same God who split the Jordan River so we could cross on dry land, he's the one who's in charge, which should take a great deal of pressure off of Joshua, right? Should take a great deal of pressure off of us as well. You know, as much as I like to be in charge, as qualified as I might feel to be in charge, it is very liberating to know I'm not in charge. God's in charge. It's not my church. It's not my life group. It's not my family. It's not my work. God's in charge. Prophet Isaiah says this in chapter 44. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Isaiah the prophet reiterates what Joshua is better learning here, that there's just one side. God's in charge. I'm not in charge. Pretty often, quite often, we all seem to have the habit of approaching our battles and approaching our causes exactly backwards. We get things exactly upside down. You know, we pray and we ask God, would you join me in this? Would you strengthen me in this? Would you empower me in my thing here? Would you join me? Would you be on my side, God? Instead of asking, God, where do you want to put me? How do you want to use me? How can I support your cause? You're the supreme commander. At the end of his first letter, the Apostle Peter talks about the battles that we're in. He talks about the enemy that we have. How Satan uh, roams around like a lion seeking who he might devour. And then Peter gives this advice at the end of his first letter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Joshua is the one that everybody is looking to for answers. He's the one that's kind of in charge of getting people, you know, across the river and telling them what to do. And, you know, he's the guy. Moses kind of turned the reins over to Joshua. But Joshua is humbled here in the presence of, of this commander. God's in control. And here's something else that, that Joshua is, is going to learn in this encounter. God has not changed. He never will. God hasn't changed. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And again, I don't think that Joshua was expecting the answer that he received. Here's what the commander of the Lord's army says. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. Does that sound familiar to anybody else here? I'm sure we all know that, right? That's exactly what God said to Moses. Uh, you know, over 40 years ago, Moses is tending Jethro's sheep near Mount Horab, and he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he goes and looks at this wonderful thing, or strange thing, and God speaks from this burning bush and says, Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Before the Nile River turned to blood, before any of the ten plagues 
before Moses led the people through the Red Sea on dry land, before the first piece of manna fell from the sky, before Moses walked up the mountain, received the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on it, before Moses became Moses, God told him, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Is there any significance that God tells Joshua the exact same thing, really for verbatim. Don't you think that when Joshua heard those words, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy. Don't you think a light bulb of recognition went off in his mind? Ooh, I know that. That's exactly what God said to Moses. I mean, if we know the quote, don't you think Joshua knew the quote? You know, he spent a lot of time with Moses. You know, I think the last 40 years, Joshua wouldn't have said, Hey, Moses, tell me about that burning bush one more time. Now, 40 years later, Joshua hears the exact same words spoken to him. So was there something holy about that piece of land near Mount Horeb, out in the wilderness? Was there something holy about this plot of ground right outside the city of Jericho? Remember, Joshua is on the outskirts of a very pagan city. They worship false gods, um, a lot of immorality, idolatry being practiced in the city. And he hears God say, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy. Was there something holy about that piece of ground? Yes, <laughs> there was that day. There was that day because the presence of the Lord was there. There was something holy about that piece of ground. Not because of where it was, but because of who was there. And we need to remember that when we find ourselves kind of outnumbered in enemy territory. We find ourselves uh, being uncertain. We're not alone. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. God is with you. I think, again, when Joshua heard those words, it, it should have taken a lot of pressure off of him. He understood that God was not just able, but God was willing to do for him what he had done for Moses. I think Joshua heard those, heard those words, you know, take off your sandals, stand on holy ground. He had to have thought to himself, that's the same message from the same God. What God did and God being with Moses, he's going to do for me. He's going to be with me. You know, if you're like me, there are times when you feel really close to God. Just feel like, man, things are going great. And it's such a sense of peace, and it's just such a great feeling to know, okay, me and God, I just feel like I'm in a good place. And then there's other times when, hmm, God seems really distant. I think probably the first preacher joke that I can remember, I heard, um, oh man, 50 years ago, the preacher of the little congregation where I grew up told the story about a husband and a wife driving down the road and the wife looked over her husband and said, remember when we were first married? You would drive with one hand on the steering wheel and your other arm would be around me and I'd snuggle up and and we'd talk and laugh. What's happened? And the husband said, well, I haven't moved. <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense to you younger people, right? 
This was back when they had bench seats, you know, and you'd actually sit beside each other. You can't do that anymore, but I, I think you get the point that, you know, he was trying to make then, and I guess I'm trying to make now. If you feel like, you know, the, there's a distance between you and God, guess who hasn't moved? Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James writes in James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The God who demanded respect from Moses at the burning bush, the same God who demanded respect from Joshua outside the city of Jericho, is the same God who demands respect from us, much more than we are in the habit of giving him. But the same God who blessed Moses in so many ways, the same God who used Joshua in so many ways, is the same God who wants to bless you and wants to use you, I think, in equally powerful ways, if we'll allow him. God's in control, not me. God hasn't changed. He never will. And then finally, if this story of Joshua teaches us anything, it teaches us God will not lose. Joshua is preparing to go to war against this fortified city, Jericho. There's a reason why the Battle of Jericho is so famous. Now, people who really don't know much of anything about the Bible can tell you that Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. I know the song helps, okay? But it's still, it's it's just a fascinating story. It resonates. Joshua chapter 5 ends, Joshua chapter 6 begins... But I think it's the same conversation. I think it's still the commander of the army of the Lord who is talking to Joshua in chapter 6. And he says this, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. His commander tells Joshua, I've already won. The city, the king, the army, they're all yours. I've already won, and the battle hasn't even started yet. Now, here's what I want you to do to claim that victory. And he goes on to tell Joshua, I have a plan. It's not your plan, it's my plan. It's not a plan that any of your military strategists would agree with. It's not a plan that that even is going to make a bit of sense to you. But it's my plan. And if you are obedient to my plan... I promise you an overwhelming victory. I will give you exactly what you want. But you're going to have to decide who you're going to listen to. You're going to have to decide whose side are you on. Let me close this thing by showing you a picture of another military man. Much more recent military man. Not not real recent, actually, but more recent than Joshua. Does anybody recognize that guy? There you go. I knew Bert would. That's Alvin York. He's uh, an amazing guy, amazing story. And here's why I bring him up in this context. Alvin York was born in 1887 in rural Tennessee. By the time he was 15 years old, he was living a hard, rough life. By his own account, the only thing that he enjoyed more than women was alcohol. I mean, it was just a hard life. Alvin York lived that hard life until, and I quote, Jesus hit me like a bolt of lightning. Alvin York became obsessed with the teachings of Jesus. 
He wanted to be a follower of Jesus. But he lived with this tension of loving Jesus and loving his country. But he wanted to love Jesus more. But he still loved his country. And practically what that meant was when America finally got into World War I, the, the Great War, the war to end all wars, which of course didn't, um, Sir, Alvin, Sir Alvin York, along with many men his age, decided to enlist. But the church that he was a part of, which actually had its roots in the Stone-Campbell movement, the Churches of Christ, for a large part that church was conscientious objectors, which is to say that many in the church, not, not just that church, but many Christians had a hard time reconciling what the red letters of Jesus said with the violence of war. So a lot of Christians enlisted as conscientious objectors. They, they served in the military, but usually as a cook or a medic, something like that. Alvin York entered World War I as a conscientious objector. He wrestled with that his entire life. After some time had elapsed, he began to witness firsthand the carnage and the death and just the sheer brutality of the enemy. And he wrestled with God about his decision for several months. And finally, he decided to rescind his conscientious objector status and he was reassigned to the infantry. Alvin York became one of the most decorated soldiers in American history. He was awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, he was revered by generals of the French and the British Army, as well as the American Army. Uh, he single-handedly captured an estimated 125 German soldiers, all by himself. He single-handedly killed 25 Germans. And this haunted him his entire life. 1941, Hollywood made a movie about his life. It was called Sergeant York. Gary Cooper, the biggest Hollywood star in the world, played the part of Alvin York in that movie. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Gary Cooper won the Academy Award for his betrayal of Alvin York. It was the top grossing film in 1941. Everybody in America, everybody in the world knew the story of Sergeant York. The movie actually dealt with his faith and his conflicting emotions regarding serving his country and serving God. So, what does that have to do with the commander of the Lord's army? Here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm telling this story. When I read about his life, and it's a fascinating story, but when I read about what his children and his grandchildren have to say about this man, Alvin York, you have, I think, a perfect example of what happens when someone with a singular kingdom focus tries to implant that into everything that they do. And two things happen. One, life becomes really simple. Two, life becomes really complicated. Simple in that it's Jesus, right? It's just Jesus. It's Jesus' teaching. It's Jesus' example. It's Jesus' commands. Just, I'm going to live my life like Jesus. Complicated because, but how do I do that in real life? How do I do that in, in real circumstances? Do I go to war? 
Do I not go to war? Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? How does that play out in real life? And this, is, I think, is true for all of us across the board. Now, we would all agree, it's Jesus. You know, we're in church, right? We're Christians. It's Jesus. It's his teaching. It's his values. And, you know, life is simple. Just, just do what Jesus, you know, what would Jesus do? It's as simple as that. But it's really complicated when you start dealing with day-to-day stuff. One of Alvin York's sons actually became a, a preacher, a preacher within the churches of Christ. And he talks about the fact that till the day he died, his father was haunted by his war experience. He was haunted with this question of violence versus nonviolence. Haunted by what he did during World War I and what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. And his son was actually with him on his deathbed. And as Alvin York was on his deathbed, he asked his son to pray to God for him that God would forgive him of those 25 lives that he took during World War I. This was after the Medal of Honor. This was after a blockbuster movie had been made about his life. This was after a school was established and built uh, by the United States government, which is still in operation today. This is after his face was on the cover of every major magazine in the world. This is after he traveled the world meeting kings, presidents, after everyone that sees, saw him wanted to meet him, wanted to congratulate him, wanted to get his autograph, after everyone he ever met told him how great he was, what a hero he was. On his deathbed, Alvin York said, the only thing that matters is what does God think? And he agonized over that. But what does God think? Am I on God's side? Because that's what a kingdom focus means. It's what a kingdom focus wants to know. What's it going to look like? How's it going to play out when it's going to cost me something? So as we think about this in the context of Joshua's interaction with the commander of the Lord's army, it raised a couple questions for me. So I'm going to pass these questions on to you. And the first one is this. What choice am I making every single day? What choice am I making every single day of my life? And I'm not talking about the choice, you know, to follow Jesus. I'm not talking about the choice to be baptized. I did that decades ago. I mean, when I get out of bed. Whose side am I going to be on? And how are people going to know whose side that I'm on? And by the way, if you're a young person, your parents can't help you with this. Or I guess I take that back. They can't help you with this. They can't make that decision for you. They, they can help you or they can hurt you. But you're going to have to make that decision by yourself. Whose side am I going to be on today? If you're a little bit older and you think you've got life pretty well figured out, you've got to decide every day. Whose side am I going to be on today? Who's in charge when it comes to how I live my day, how I make my decisions And then the other question is, do I believe the kingdom of God is forever? We all say yes. Next. But you need to think about that in the context of how you live your life. Do you truly believe that the kingdom of God is forever? Do your priorities reflect that? Alvin York, on his deathbed, asking God to forgive him, realized 
kingdom of God is going to last forever. America won't last forever. Germany won't last forever. China won't last forever. Amazon won't last forever. Apple won't last forever. The kingdom of God will last forever. God is in charge. God hasn't changed. God will win. What we have to decide is whose side am I going to be on? We're going to sing a song of encouragement this morning. If we can help you as a church family in any way, we invite you to come to the front and let us know. Let's be standing.